Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with blogger and author Kevin Davis about his life, teaching skepticism, and dealing with a life-changing event. Kevin Davis is a writer and blogger. He's the author of Understanding an Atheist and was featured in the book version of A Better Life. I asked him about his background and being raised in a religious environment. I was raised uh, in a Catholic home um, with a family who's uh, Italian Catholic. Um, Went to Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade and uh, uh, learned everything I thought there was to know about religion at that point. Um, and then I left my Catholic bubble and went to a public high school, um, where I was, uh, interestingly enough, uh, surrounded by, uh, friends who were, uh, of various, uh, Christian denominations and, and started learning more about that. Uh, went to college after that and ended up, um, kind of going on a search for, uh, what I believed and ended up being a born again Christian for a little while. Before I finally, um, you know, really, I, I guess I had finally read enough books um, about religion, uh, especially Christianity and the um, history of Christianity and, and, you know, where it all comes from and uh, ended up as an atheist in, in college and have been ever since. So um, it's, it's, it's been a strange journey. Um, and I'm still, you know, part of a family that's full of, uh, believers, but, uh, they're starting to, uh, you know, at least come around and, um, and have a little bit of an understanding of where I'm coming from. So, um, that's, that's the journey. Was it a, a long process going from, I guess you were at that point an evangelical Christian to being an atheist? What was that specific transition like for you? Um, yeah, so... Uh, you know, I, I was, I think, a, a sophomore in college when I was, um, um, you know, kind of flirting with the Christian side of things. And uh, I signed up for a class that I thought was going to really, um, you know, reinforce and solidify my Christian beliefs. And, and the course was called uh, Christian Thought. And it was actually a history course. Um taught by a Christian um, who uh, really went into um, not only the history of Christianity, but some you know philosophical teachings behind it. Uh, and I was really woken up to uh, the fact that there was so much that I wasn't being told, whether it was you know in my childhood uh, in Catholic school or um, you know by my current pastor and and Christian friends and, and things like that as far as, you know, where the Gospels come from and, um, you know, how much was kind of kicked out of the Bible before, um, uh, you know, it was settled upon. And, uh, you know, I came to the realization that, hey, you know, a lot of this is political. A lot of this is about uh, controlling the population. Um, and I decided it was bullshit. So, um you know, since then, I've been I've been a much more critical thinker. Uh, I've been, um, uh, you know, skeptical about what I'm uh, 
told by the masses. However, no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really changed my uh, point of view on a lot of things. And um, religion was really just the first thing. So um, uh, thankfully, the born again Christian thing was just a short phase. It was maybe about a year or so. Uh, and and since then, I've uh, come to my senses. But the, um, the transition from uh, Christian to atheist was, uh, I think, very gradual. But there was that aha moment that kind of kicked it off. When you said you were flirting with the Christian side of things, <laughs> what appealed to you about Christianity? What was the draw for you? Why were you looking into it in the first place? What answers weren't you getting that you were looking into Christianity in the first place to find? Um, that's a great question. So uh, I think I was looking for who I was um, and what was important to me. So... Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine was a member of the campus uh, uh, InterVarsity Fellowship Club, and uh, I went to a few of those meetings, and, you know, everybody was just so damn happy, and everyone was, there was a sense of belonging, and um, the sense of knowing your fate, and knowing what was out there, um, because these these were people who didn't openly question things. These were people who um, were giving me the answers. So um, there was a sense of comfort in that. And, um, you know, albeit a, um, you know, a disingenuous kind of comfort, right? So um, there wasn't a lot of facts behind what I was being told uh, about the world around me in those meetings. It was, it was, there was a lot of emotion involved and that's really kind of the hook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the people I was uh, spending time with. And I, you know, it was it was more of a, you know, the whole profession of faith and everything. It was more of a, I want to be a part of this club because it's really um, welcoming and, and um, I feel this sense of belonging. So I want to be here more than I believe all of this stuff that I'm being told. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like, well, everything here must be true because it feels so good. And how have you found those things without Christianity? Or were you able to find those same things after leaving evangelical Christianity? Uh, you know, you really have to look for it. Um, in the secular community, it's it's difficult because a lot of us are, you know, we're in the a pretty decent minority and we're spread out all over the place. And we're, you know, forced into the shadows to some respect because, you know, we're, you know, depending on what community you're in, what part of, um, you know, for the U.S. audience, what part of the U.S. you're in and, and whether um, you're in religious communities, uh, it's difficult to connect with other atheists. Uh, and that's why a lot of the secular community is based online, right? So, um you get kind of that sense of community in the online space, um, but it's not the same. You know, uh, there are certainly local atheist groups and meetups and things like that, um, but you don't always get, you know, that uh, that feeling of um, belonging or that feeling of, um, you know, what you're involved in is 
where you should be. Uh, it's mm-hmm. difficult to explain, but it's, you know, that there's this kind of ingrained um, joy that's involved in um, in the Christian community when everyone's together and they're feeling that vibe and you're singing the songs and you're doing that thing. Um, that is, it's a, it's a draw for a lot of people and it's, you know, it definitely um, hooks you in and, and makes you not want to leave. Um, I don't think we have the same thing in the secular community. I mean, there's uh, uh, the um, atheist church or, um, you know, different things like that that have tried to kind of mimic that community. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. But, you know, I, I, I find those same, um, the, the same emotional connection to, um, you know, music or spending time with my family or, um, uh, you know, doing the things that I enjoy doing that are, you know, not based in religion. But you, you definitely have to make an effort to look for those things, I think. Has your relationship with your more religious family changed after this deconversion? Uh, I think it has to some respect. I mean, I, 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 we've had some, you know, conflicts here and there just based on uh, my feelings about religion and, and, and um, you know, how they're still involved in it. But, um, you know, I, I certainly respect their right to believe what they want to believe, however unfounded as I uh, you know, believe it to be. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of, this, it's, it's still somewhat of a, um, uh, elephant in the room when, you know, you're together with, for holidays and things like that. But, um, you know, there's always going to be some sort of tension. Um, but, um, you know, for the most part, um, it's been okay. You know, definitely a better situation than, uh, a lot of folks that I I hear about in you know other religions and things like that, Catholics don't tend to be um, as exclusionary when they hear you know there's a a non-believer among them. Yeah, and I I like the fact that you mentioned how important the online community is to the atheist and secular world because I think some people don't know that that you know there is this huge online community which is mm-hmm. bigger than any local or community group. And in some cases, it's hard to have a local community group. If you're in a very conservative area, you aren't necessarily going to have the numbers of people to get together every week or even every month in some cases. Right. Um, so that's really important. And you found kind of a, a niche there uh, in the online community with your writing to to reach a broader community than you could, uh, you know, in your hometown. Right. Most definitely. I, I'm um, the head writer for Secular Voices, uh, which is on Pathios and with, um, you know, a good number of other non-religious um, blogs and columns. Uh, so, you know, the the community that I've found there and, and um, uh, you know, in corresponding um, conferences and, and, and gatherings like that, it's just been um, it, it's been great because, you know, for, for people who haven't been to you know, a, an atheist or secular conference, it's really this kind of kumbaya gathering, right? Mm-hmm. And, and no matter how many people you know there, I mean, I've gone to them by myself and not known anyone, and you just kind of, you know, meet people and, and, um, um, it, 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 it's probably the closest thing to going to church for an atheist as far as that feeling of inclusion and acceptance. 
um, than anything else. But, you know, they happen in, you know, could be a city across the country from you and, you know, a couple of times a month. And um, it's difficult to travel around and go to as many as you want to go to when, you know, in the religious community, they walk down the street and go to church. So, um, you know, th- those types of things are out there. It's just um, trying to get to those um, that can be difficult for many. And you said, obviously, you're head writer for Secular Voices. Have you always wanted to be a writer? Is that uh, kind of was what caused you to get into writing in the first place? Or was it something that what did an event or situation cause you to say, oh, I want to become a writer at this point in my life? Um, no, I, I've always been interested in, in writing. Uh, you know, ever since I was younger, I, I always said I wanted to um, write a book someday or um, you know, be a journalist or, or, you know, my personal career didn't lead me toward, um, journalism, but, uh, once I came out as an atheist and started getting more involved in the community and, um, you know, becoming aware of, uh, church state separation issues, uh, and, and seeing that those things are becoming more prevalent, um, and especially more noticeable now that I'm an out atheist. And this was, um, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, uh, you know, I thought, hey, why don't I start writing about this? You know, I have a voice. I w- I'd like to get it out there. And um, I started my own blog on my own site called DividedUnderGod.com, um, mm-hmm. which eventually was converted into Secular Voices um, and then picked up by Pathios. But, you know, it was it was something I was always interested in. And, and um, being someone who... Um, isn't necessarily in a, you know, I live in, in New York state, which is a blue state and we don't have a lot of, um, church state separation issues locally. Um, I wanted to be able to kind of expand my reach and talk about things that are happening all over the country and, and kind of raise awareness to those things. So that's really where it started. And you also did write a book as well. I did. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a book called understanding an atheist, a practical guide to relating to non-believers. And it's really targeted to um, uh, religious friends and family of atheists. And it's it was born out of my own experience in, in coming out and um, things that I encountered with my own family and, and friends and uh, the questions that people had. And, um, you know, it's 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 meant for the religious folks to read and kind of understand about what their atheist friend or family member is going through. Um it answers some questions that they might have that are they're afraid to ask or, you know, kind of addresses that elephant in the room that I was talking about earlier. And that's great, too, because it, it came out of your own experience. It wasn't something hypothetical that you had to think about. Oh, right. how would someone think in this particular situation? This is something that you personally dealt with. So it's something that um, that has real life behind it. It's not just kind of some fictional hypotheticals. Right. I mean, when I went, a lot of it started when um, my wife and I started having kids and we had our family members, you know, watching uh, our kids when we were at work during the day and, um, you know, things that we didn't really um, expect to go through, like, you know, people asking questions about, well, when are you going to get the kids baptized? And, um, you know, what do you do around Christmas time and what's the right thing to say? And should we pray at dinner and all those kinds of things that 
really you don't consider that are part of the daily lives of religious people that now they have to start thinking about these things and um, they're not sure how to approach them because, you know, as you know, so many families and, and so many communities, um, you know, preach this edict that uh, it's not appropriate to talk about religion or politics. Well, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you get to know the people in your circle of friends and the people in your family better, you know, as human beings, if you talk about what they believe and you talk about what they don't believe and you talk about what what values are important to them in religion and politics, I mean, that's how you get to know people and what they're thinking rather than have, you know, on the surface conversations like, you know, how's work? How's your car? How's your family? How's, you know, these are small talk type things. And I don't think those are the conversations that are as pertinent to people who have kind of a deeper connection like friends and family. And it also makes you think more about your own views on politics or religion. You know, if you're constantly having these conversations, I mean, you're right, it can be difficult and awkward if you have disagreements, but it actually can make you realize maybe you're thinking about something in the wrong way, or maybe it reinforces that, oh, you are thinking about something in the right way, or, you know, expanding your views, not only about what other people think, but why you think the way you do as well. Right, right. And not all conversations need to be, you know, heated conversations when it comes to religion and politics. There can be an understanding that you're on two sides of of the fence and um, and have those discussions. And uh, I've certainly had those with, you know, people in my family and extended family, uh, you know, that haven't ended up being, hey, let's block each other on Facebook now uh, because we don't agree on gun control or something like that. It's, you know, have calm calm conversations. And I've learned a lot along the way in in those kinds of conversations. And so have people that I've talked with. So, you know, it's it's mutually beneficial. And I think it makes a family stronger when, you know, you can get to know people better, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in in that same vein, you also started you're so busy. You <laughs> you also started uh, Young Skeptics. I did. So uh, I started Young Skeptics uh, a couple years ago. Uh, Young Skeptics is a an after-school club for elementary school kids, which is focused on critical thinking and evidence-based reasoning. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of born out of uh, a bunch of us. I'm, I'm in a local meetup group in uh, Western New York called the Atheist Community of Rochester. Uh, and a few of us were getting together discussing, uh, Catherine Stewart's book called, uh, the good news club. And in that book, she, it was kind of an expose for those who haven't heard of it. It's an expose on, uh, the good news club, which is a, an school club for elementary school kids, um, that, uh, teaches kids, um, that they're all sinners and, um, you know, destined for hell unless they say the prayer of salvation and dedicate their seven-year-old lives to Jesus. Um, and we were, you know, discussing about how horrible this was and, and um, thought, hey, let's, uh, let's find out if any of them are in our local community and come to find out there was one in my school district. Um, so we, you know, talked about what can we do to kind of combat this or get them kicked out. And we've, you know, come to find out they want a Supreme Court case to be able to access kids in schools. Um, There wasn't much we could do 
aside from, um, you know, notifying parents and about what they really are and, and, and things like that or picketing or, you know, but then we just look like a bunch of angry atheists who hate religion and we're doing everything we can to upset that. So be- because it was an after school group, they were still able to do it even though it was religious in nature. Is that correct? Right. So uh, there's a Supreme Court case uh, called uh, Good News Club versus Milford School District. Mm-hmm. And it was actually in New York State where uh, the Good News Club sued for access to uh, schools under um, equal access provisions. So uh, basically they were uh, an outside organization uh, using the school um, because it's a public building, and uh, the Supreme Court favored the the Good News Club to be able to let them do that because other organizations can, like um, you know, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, uh, you know, any sports club, um, mm-hmm. things like that. So they're in, in that same vein. They should have the equal access to use the facilities. They just can't be um, uh, advertised by the school district. They have to have on their permission slips and, and literature that they are um, not sponsored by the school district, that they're an outside agency. Oh, okay. We wanted to do something positive instead of, you know, focus on the negative of the Good News Club. And we thought, well, why don't we start an atheism club? And we thought, well, uh, we don't really want to do the same thing that Good News Club is doing and kind of, you know, being predatory and, and trying to convert kids to, to our um, particular you know, worldview. Um, that's mm-hmm. not fair to kids. It's not fair to their parents. Um, and it's not, these aren't decisions that we think, you know, seven, eight, nine year olds should be, should be making. Um, these are, this is instruction that they should get in their homes from their parents, not from, uh, you know, strangers in the community. So, uh, we decided to, to combat the good news club by, um, producing an alternative, um, which we called young skeptics. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're focused on teaching kids how to think, not what to think, and um, giving them critical thinking skills that they'll use, you know, not just to combat, you know, uh, evangelicals that come at them with, you know, all of their chick tracks and things like that, but, you know, to to figure out what's uh, real and fake, what's, what, you know, how to evaluate evidence, how to use the scientific method, um, and, and especially in the times that we're in now and in the misinformation age, right. That, uh, you know, they can, uh, weigh evidence when they see something that might be untrue, you know, whether it's some, um, crazy conspiracy theory or it's fake news or, um, you know, whatever they encounter on the internet, how to kind of separate fact from fiction. So what has the reaction been to the young skeptics since you started it? Uh, well, the reaction's been mixed. So when we launched, um, you know, a couple years back, uh, we sent out some press releases and, um, you know, tried to get the word out because uh, we weren't allowed to, being an outside organization, um, just like the Good News Club, we weren't allowed to uh, advertise within the school or send flyers home with kids and things like that. So we had to be a little bit inventive as far as how we can get the word to parents to sign their kids up. So we tried to do it through the media, um, sent, uh, you know, press releases out to the local TV and newspaper, uh, organizations and, and also some national organizations, uh, and, 
the story got picked up actually by uh, the Washington Post and uh, uh, Religion News Service. And um, it's funny because the, the last people to pick up the story were local people. Uh, we actually made the national news first, uh, and they really, I think, latched on to the, the whole atheist angle because, you know, that's the, the headline and the clickbait is, you know, look at what these atheists are doing in this small town, um, combating this religious group, and and you know they made it kind of into this um, us versus them battle, which really what we were doing is offering an alternative to the religious group, um, not necessarily trying to oust them or um, put our group against them. Uh, but you know, I, I guess uh, you know they say no publicity is bad publicity, so. Uh, you know, we did some interviews and things, and uh, the reaction was mixed, like I said. So we had, uh, you know, people who were on the side of the Good News Club and um, supporting what they were doing, not not really knowing uh, the extent of which they were doing, which was, you know, their, you know, kind of psychologically abusive practices and things like that, um, but really just taking them at their face value that they were this, um, you know, Bible club and that we were somehow um, attacking them by creating this other club. Um, so we had people kind of lash out against us and say that, you know, we were just trying to create atheists and convert kids to atheism. And really young skeptics has nothing to do with atheism. It's just a club about critical thinking and science and, and, and things like that. Um, and actually uh, the, uh, the blaze did a, did a story, um, about us in that respect and that the the comments on that are are pure gold if you ever wanted to google that article it's uh, you know all the all the right wingers were in there accusing us of like bringing about the end of the world and things like that it's it's hilarious and even ken ham uh wrote a blog post about him about us saying uh uh that our club was just atheism for kids so it was interesting just to see um the reactions of of some people um and and the reporter for the religion news service actually was, was pretty down the middle, um, and was somewhat supportive of, um, of us, you know, creating this alternative and, and, um, you know, getting kids to think critically. You know, you've made it in the secular world when Ken Ham writes a blog article. About <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that made my day for sure. Um, <laughs> interesting to see. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that the local media took a while to actually catch on to the story. What was the reaction in your local community where you, you started this club? Yeah, unfortunately, it was kind of slow to, to get picked up here. Um, but, you know, eventually they did. And, and the TV news came out to uh, film part of our uh, one of our meetings. And uh, the, the local community, as far as kind of the greater uh, Rochester, New York, which is the, the you know, the semi-larger city that we're a suburb of um uh, there wasn't much of a a reaction you know except for a few newspaper articles and and comments around that um in in the local town where uh, our club started which is called churchville new york ironically uh which is also where i live um it, it's a it's a very rural um conservative community and um i'm pretty sure that the local folks know who i am now 
uh, at least a, a good portion of them. And uh, I've uh, had a few things happen as far as like, you know, getting my car keyed and um, seeing some <laughs> middle fingers I wouldn't normally see. Um, <laughs> but, you know, nothing too drastic. Uh, and I think they were just hoping that we would kind of fade away and, uh, and you know, wouldn't get anyone getting coming to our meetings. Um, I know that uh, the uh, local... Um, I don't know if it's the school board or the PTA or whatever it is, but there was a lot of chatter that we weren't a part of that we were kind of, um, you know, informed of later on that um, teachers and and school officials were prepared uh, in what they could or couldn't say to us or, um, uh, you know, that they couldn't exclude us from entering the school and things like that. So they were pretty well prepared as far as a, a legal standpoint to, um, uh, you know, to know what they could do and what they couldn't do and what we could do and what we couldn't do. Um, so that kind of went pretty smoothly. Um, and of course them dealing with the good news club prior, um, they were pretty well versed on, on that kind of stuff. So is it just, um, your group locally that's putting on this group or is it, um, has it become a national phenomenon? Um, I wouldn't call it a phenomenon. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we started locally with our pilot group here in Churchville, New York. Uh, we did that for um, one semester just to see um, how the curriculum went and how it was, you know, how the kids reacted and whether they liked it or not, of course. Um, and then once that was done and we had some pretty good feedback from the kids, um, we stepped back from being in the school, uh, focused on redesigning our curriculum, making it more, um, uh, you know, polished and professional and uh, move toward a national launch. Because what we wanted to do was, um, you know, really reach out to as many school districts and kids as we could. And having our group in just a small local town, we weren't going to be able to to have much of an impact um just staying here. So we decided to kind of redirect our focus on national expansion. And that's what we're still working on now. Uh, We just launched a club this year, the beginning of this year uh, in California. And um, we actually just had our meeting with them about a month ago, just to go over how everything went and kind of have this postmortem and, um, you know, set a plan for any curriculum changes and expansions that we're going to do. But it went really well out there. And um, we have uh, a pretty good list of secular groups and um, even individuals who are interested in uh, starting local clubs uh, all around the country. So I've been trying to hit as many you know, conferences and podcasts and things like that as I can to spread the word and say we're out there and um, really you know, garner interest in uh, starting clubs. So uh, we have a working list right now, and if you know anybody's listening to this who's interested and and might want to you know look into it more or or get their local group together, um, you know to start a Young Skeptics Club, um, you can get us on YoungSkeptics.net, and our curriculum's up there, um, as well as a lot of contact information to uh, to get started. So when I first met you, you had one son, and since we've met, you've had another son. Yep. And I read this. A letter that you wrote um, on your blog uh, two years ago now. Your son is two, right? Yes. 
And it was very personal for me, actually, because I don't know if you know this or my listeners know this, but I was actually born three months premature myself. No kidding. Back in 1982, which people can find out (laughs) how old I am. And so, you know, hearing that you had this experience as well um, was was personal for me, too, thinking, oh, wow, that's that's what my parents went through as well. I'm sure my, my parents can both understand exactly what... Uh, where you're coming from. So can you talk a little bit about what the experience you went through was and why you wrote the letter that you did? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, I can't believe that we almost didn't have a Chris Johnson. I know, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't you glad? I am so glad. (laughs) I am so glad. Um, Yeah, so uh, two years ago, uh, my wife unexpectedly went into preterm labor uh, at 27 weeks. And uh, shortly thereafter, to our surprise, um, my second son was born. Um, and it was really kind of this, it, it was, uh, you know, a middle of the night thing. It was, you know, it was really this huge shock to everyone. And we certainly weren't ready for this um, in any way, um, you know, physically and emotionally uh, to go through this whole thing. And, and really it was... Um, it's all kind of a blur really thinking back, but, um, yeah, he was, he was two pounds, seven ounces when he was born. Um, and you know, I'm glad to say he's doing very well now. He's, he turned two in April and, um, you know, he's, he's doing great and is almost, um, caught up to where a, you know, two-year-old would be as far as developmentally and, and all of that. So, um, he's doing awesome. Um, but you know, about a month after he was born, uh, you know, kind of the culmination of everything going on and, and, and sitting with him every day, uh, in the, you know, neonatal intensive care unit, uh, and going through that whole process, uh, kind of came to a head and, and, um, I had this moment where I'm like, I need to get all of these thoughts out somewhere. Um, so as I was sitting in the NICU with him and, uh, holding him, um, I pulled out my, my phone and went to my blog and I actually started writing this letter on my phone. Um, and it became this blog post, um, that I titled an atheist open letter to those praying for his son. Uh, and it, it, it was written not as like a big screw you to people who told me they were um, praying for him, but it was really um, kind of this cathartic moment for me where I could put everything out there that I wanted to say to people who did tell me that. And, you know, it, it when people would, would say, you know, my prayers are with you, my thoughts are with you, um, I always thanked them. I was gracious about it. Um, it was not something where I would, you know, I was this angry atheist and said, oh, screw you. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that. Don't tell me that, you know, you pray for me. I'll think for you. I, I'm, you know, it, it's a moment where people are trying to show their support. Um, but along with that, you know, it kind of, um, stirs up these emotions because, uh, you realize that they're saying this. Um, not only because they're trying to support you, but because they actually believe it's going to do something. And, 
um, for me, uh, I am a an out atheist, and most of the people who were saying this to me know that. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get my thoughts out and um, communicate that what communicate back to people what that means to me and how that made me feel. So I wrote this letter and, um, you know, there's some frustration in it. There's some, um, appreciation in it, but, um, you know, mostly it's just, um, me, uh, um, acknowledging those who are thanking, or I'm sorry, it's me acknowledging those who are, um, you know, expressing their, um, their thoughts and, 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 and prayers towards us, but it's also my feelings about um, why I think that doesn't do anything. And it's not just because there's no God, but um, it goes into, uh, you know, if we put everything into prayer, I wouldn't be holding my son right now. If we, uh, you know, if it were up to God, I, you know, um, if it if it were up to God, um, he would have died at childbirth. So uh, putting your trust in a deity to now help my son, who uh, is under the care of doctors and nurses who have made it their uh, life's work to um, you know to nurse these kids back to health. Um, it it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, if prayer did something in the first place, then we wouldn't be going through this kind of thing. So, um, you know, I encourage people to read it, especially if you've been through a similar situation or you know someone who has, or you're frustrated with um, people who, uh, you know, say things to you like, I'll be praying for you, even though they know that you're an atheist. And it really does more for them than it does for you. Um, I'm probably not doing it justice um, as I talk about it now, but I really encourage people to um, go to Secular Voices and look look up the piece because um, I think it really puts out there a lot of what all of us think when we go through things like this and we go through traumatic times, um, whether it's um, you know a premature birth like like we went through, or it's a death in the family, or it's any kind of tragedy. Uh, I think that uh, it speaks to a lot of different people and, uh, you know, it can help believers understand what we go through emotionally when we have a moment like this. Wow. And and one thing I really like about the piece in particular is you do strike that balance really well of showing compassion and understanding for these people telling you this, you know, that they're often their hearts are in the right place and it's the, the sentiment is a good one. But at the same time, especially when they know you're an atheist, that it brings up these feelings and thoughts with you uh, that aren't so good. Right. And and after I wrote it and posted it and I was, you know, it, it did more for me than I expected it to do out in the atheist community. It was really a thing for me to to kind of just get it out of my system. Right. Um, but then. I posted it and people started sharing it and I started getting emails asking, what can we do to help? And uh, I ended up set it, setting up a GoFundMe uh, and 
the secular community just went crazy and started donating money for his care. And um, we ended up raising about $10,000. And it was just, I mean, I, I'm still speechless when I think about it, um, that people you know, would reach out to someone they don't know um, and, and do that. And you know, the, the money since then, um, thank goodness for Obamacare. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of Grayson's um, costs were picked up by uh, Medicaid. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of that money was used uh, for um, his care and, and um, to help us while we were off of work and sitting in the NICU for three months or two months. Um, but um, a lot of that money was actually given back to local charities who help uh, families in similar situations. So, uh, you know, it was it was amazing. And unfortunately, the reaction from the religious community was um, not as kind uh, for the most part. Wow. That's unfortunate. Yeah, we actually had um, uh, at least one person um, send along a death threat to a uh, newborn child. <laughs> wow. As as someone who was born prematurely myself, it's it's interesting because most of the hardship and memories of all of this are on the parents because mm-hmm. I don't remember anything. I mean, I spent the right. first three months of my life in a box and I don't remember anything about it, but my, I've talked to my parents about it and they, um, I mean, they have these terrible memories of, of, of me, um, uh, you know, that first couple months and how hard it was right. for them. So. Right. And as a parent, you're totally helpless because there's nothing that you can really do for your kid. Um, you have to put all of your trust in these doctors and nurses and, you know, hope that their training was right and that, you know, science is going to help you because you all you can do is kind of stand there and watch. And it's amazing how far we've come because of science, because of medical technology that, you know, kids nowadays have a much better chance at living than uh, than they did even when I was was born. Right. I, I remember talking to some of the nurses in the NICU and, you know, they would tell us that, you know, 27 weeks is not a big deal anymore. And it's crazy because, you know, you look at this kid and he's, you know, just over two pounds and you think, how is that not a big deal? When, um, you know, they said that you know, when they started in their job, maybe, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 27 weeks was kind of the threshold of uh, medical technology and that that was kind of what everyone was studying. And now they're at 24 weeks where they're, that's kind of like the, the threshold where they say, okay, it's iffy whether, you know, the, the child might make it or not. And, and they just keep, you know, getting, um, you know, further and further down the road. And, um, you know, one thing that I will say that was uh, really heartwarming is that Um, In the letter that I wrote, um, you know, I talked about how, uh, you know, we're not in need of of prayers from people. We're in need of real support. Um, We're in need of, you know, someone to talk to. We're in in need of, you know, someone to ask us if they can actually do anything for us. Um, You know, whether it's a shoulder to cry on or somebody to mow our lawn or, um, someone to, you know, deliver dinner or something. It's, um, it's amazing when you, you're in a situation like that and you are, uh, 
you know, kind of losing track of your life and you uh, need as much help with the little things as you can get. And when people instead offer what to you is an empty gesture, um, it's frustrating. And um, in the letter, I talk a lot about how, um, you know, we're putting our, our trust in, in doctors and nurses and imagine how frustrating it must be for them when they work every day to save the lives of children and they turn around and, and the parents of these children say, oh, they're going to make it, thank God. And they don't thank the doctors and the nurses. And I actually had one of the nurses in our NICU, this, this letter made its rounds apparently in the hospital. And one of the nurses pulled me aside one day and thanked me for writing it, which was, you know, pretty amazing. Wow, that's incredible. How is Grayson doing now? Grayson is awesome. He's uh, he's a handful for sure, and he's going to be the tough one of the family because, uh, you know, he, he had a rough start, and uh, he fought his way through it, and he's definitely still a fighter. So he's, uh, he's picking fights with his six-year-old brother now. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.